0: Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. On this episode, the constitutionalization of human rights law and its impact on asylum seekers. Professor Steve Miley analyzes how lawyers representing asylum seekers in five countries – Colombia, Mexico, South Africa, Uganda, and the United States – had bridged the gap between the constitutionalization of human rights law as written to protecting asylum seekers on the ground. Professor Miley's talk is based on his forthcoming book from Oxford University Press, The Constitutionalization of Human Rights Law, Implications for Refugees. Professor Miley is the James H. Michael Professor of International Human Rights Law. His research focuses on the rights of non-citizens, particularly refugees and asylum seekers. He is the director of the law school's Immigration and Human Rights Clinic, where students represent asylum seekers and human trafficking survivors. This event was recorded on April 14th, 2022. It is also available for viewing on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. I want to give a warm welcome to our faculty, staff, students, friends who are both here in the room, Lockhart Auditorium, but we also have uh, uh, many friends on Zoom, uh, so we welcome them as well. I'm Gary Jenkins, I'm Dean of the Law School, and we are gathered here today for a great occasion. The investiture of Professor Steve Miley, as the James H. Michael Chair in International Human Rights Law. Now, at the conclusion of the lecture, I want to invite you all to join us upstairs, so just up one level in the Auerbach Commons. Uh, We will have uh, a reception with light refreshments, Please make your way up at the end of the event uh, down here. So, an investiture. An investiture of a named uh, professorship is especially meaningful in higher education. It acknowledges the highest levels of research, teaching, and service. It's also a time to celebrate the honoree. And to honor those who make academic excellence possible. And in this case, the James H. Michael Chair in International Human Rights Law was created through an estate gift from James H. Michael, class of 47. And the gift was directed to support a clinical professorship in international human rights. So recognizing that this great public law school in the heartland needed to be engaged in direct legal services, helping people with real cases, real legal issues, Right. that's the clinical part, and also connected to the world, the international human rights part. And it's a reminder that international human rights work happens in New York, in Washington DC, in Geneva, The Hague, and in Minnesota at the University of Minnesota Law School. This professorship provides a beautiful memorial to Jim Michael, who was one of us, a proud and loyal graduate who envisioned our faculty and students working and learning together as they literally changed the world and we are so grateful that his son, Jeff, and daughter-in-law, Megan, could be here with us today. I'm especially pleased that this is our second permanent endowed professorship um, at the law school, and it's designated for faculty primarily working in our clinics. So let me tell you a little bit about Jim Michael before I tell you a little bit about Steve Miley. Uh, Jim attended the University of Minnesota for his undergraduate degree and then served in World War II as a first lieutenant. After the war, he attended law school, graduating in 1947. He married Carol Johnson and they raised a son, Jeff, and four daughters, uh, Jeanette, Jennifer, Roxanne, and Rosemary. Uh, Jim was a lawyer leader. He had an illustrious career as a real estate investor and entrepreneur. Most notably, he founded Michael Foods, acquired uh, Knudsen Construction Company, and financed the formation of Corvell Corporation. Now, in addition to this professorship, Jim also established the James H. Michael Scholarship Fund at the law school, which is also generously supported by Jeff and Megan. So, Again, I just want to say thank you to Jeff and Megan for your continued support of the law school, uh, for joining us this afternoon as we honor Jim Michael his legacy and all that the Michael family has meant and means uh, to our law school and its impact. With this gift, your father, Jim, entrusted us to continue to make a difference, and he recognized that great students and great faculty doing great things at a great institution is a powerful combination, and we're really grateful. Now, it's my pleasure to formally install my terrific colleague and friend, an outstanding researcher, a skillful teacher, and a powerful clinical instructor, Steve Miley, as the James H. Michael Chair in International Human Rights Law. Professor Miley is a graduate of Dartmouth. Uh, He earned an MA and a JD from New York University School of Law, and an LLM from Georgetown. He was a long time clinical faculty member at the University of Wisconsin Law School in Madison, but then he finally saw the light and came to the better side of the border when he joined the University of Minnesota Law School in 2008, Uh, became a tenured associate professor in 2018, and promotion to full professor will be effective fall of 2022. Here at Minnesota Law, uh, Professor Miley writes and teaches about the rights of non-citizens, particularly those seeking asylum. He teaches immigration law and international refugee law. He also serves as the director, of course, of the law school's Immigration and Human Rights Clinic, where students represent asylum seekers and trafficking victims in various immigration and appellate court proceedings. His articles have been published in the Harvard Human Rights Journal, the Georgetown Immigration Law Journal, the Columbia Human Rights Law Review, and the Vanderbilt Journal of Transnational Law, among other places. His scholarship often takes a comparative approach. Uh, He has analyzed the effectiveness of human rights treaties in protecting asylum seekers in Canada, Ecuador, Mexico, the UK, and the European Union. And His current project, which will be a forthcoming book under contract with Oxford University Press, is a comparative study of constitutionalization of human rights law and its impact on asylum seekers in Colombia. Mexico, South Africa, Uganda, and the United States. He was awarded the Stanley V. Kenyon Clinical Teacher of the Year Award in 2011, and he has previously held the Vaughan Papke Clinical Professorship in Law and the James H. Binger Professorship in Clinical Law. And today, on the occasion of his investiture, his lecture is entitled The Constitutionalization Of human rights law implications for refugees. So, Steve, why don't you come on up? Now, sorry, welcome (laughs) to again. Just just one more thing. So, those of you who have been here before, you know that typically I present a gift um, uh, at the investor (laughs) to um and, and during my time. As dean, uh, it's been a beautiful set of glass um, bookends. Um, and the last time we had one of these, I had to like say, "Hey, I'm so sorry. They're not here because of supply chain issues." <laughs> uh, they eventually came, but um, but but I did have to do that. So this time, we like ordered early. They arrived, but they broke in transit. <laughs> So, Steve, I don't have bookends to hand you. How about this? But it's a lovely water bottle. Metaphorical. They are coming. They are coming. They are really beautiful. Make room on your bookshelf for them. Uh, and uh, and uh, so I just wanted to let everyone know that, friends, faculty, staff, everyone online, please join me in congratulating and welcoming Professor Steve Miley.
2: Thank you so much, Gary, and thanks to all of you for uh, coming inside on this beautiful April day in Minnesota. Um, For those on Zoom, I'm being facetious. Uh, It's at least snowing, if not hailing and sleeting outside, so thanks to all of you who made the trek in uh, today. Uh, Gary, thanks for that introduction, and to the Michael family, thank you so much, um, Jeff and Megan in particular, for establishing this chair in memory of your father and father-in-law. I think it's a particularly significant time uh, for the law school uh, to have established a chair dedicated to human rights work. Uh, Every day, there are unfolding atrocities in the area of human rights. Of course, we're familiar with what's going on in Ukraine right now. But Every day, there seems to be something else. Just this morning, I was reading about how in the UK, the Boris Johnson government is considering diverting refugees on their way to the UK to Rwanda, um, basically replicating the offshore diversion that um, Australia has been practicing for several years. Um, There are many professors and law students at the law school and the larger university here who are interested in promoting human rights preventing these kinds of atrocities, encouraging the enforcement of rights on the ground. and This law school and its alumni, like the Michael family, uh, are supporting this work in myriad ways. But our work would not be possible without the support that we receive uh, from donors as well as from uh, other institutions that allow us to do the work that we do. Jeff and Megan, uh, I can assure you that I will use this chair to conduct research uh, and to advocate on behalf of refugees and asylum seekers to make sure that their rights are defended. So, thank you very much. Um, now, in addition to the Michael family, I have a few other thank yous. Uh, again, to Gary, not just for that very nice introduction, but to Gary for cultivating an atmosphere here at the law school where Uh, members of the faculty and students feel encouraged to pursue their passion in defense of human rights. and That has made a huge difference to all of us, so thank you for that, Gary. Um, Thanks to Olivia Kurtz for organizing this whole event uh, and to Randy Barrett for handling all the technical aspects of it. Thanks to the U of M Grand Challenges and uh, Strategic Partnership Program for providing the funding so that I could do the research. to my unbelievably accomplished cadre of research assistants over the, the past three years, um, Ashley Ahas, um, Sarah Hamala, Kimberly Medina, Ryan Rainey, Lauren Russ, Emily Hauk, and most recently, Katie McCoy. Uh, their passion for this work, their willingness to work with our partners in various countries, enrich the research, and has, will make the book that's coming out as a result Uh, that much better, so I am indebted to all of you. To my colleagues on the faculty here at at the law school and at other parts of the university, thank you for the support uh, and the feedback that you've given me on my research over the years. That's been invaluable in making it stronger as well. Uh, To my friends and family who have supported me, my wife, Lee Payne, my kids who may be on Zoom, uh, although they may be doing other things at the time, I can't imagine. Uh, but uh, they've supported me despite bouts of anxiety that have accompanied me as I do this kind of work. To be honest, I'm the kind of person who'd be anxiety, whatever, I, who'd be anxious regardless of what kind of work I do. But uh, uh, working on behalf of refugees is kind of off the anxiety chart. So thank you for that support. To my students, clinic students, many of whom are here today. Who spend so much of their time defending the rights and the human rights of refugees and asylum seekers every day? It is you who often stand between them, their place of refuge here in the United States, and what would likely be torture, rape, beatings, and death in their home country. And your courage and dedication is an inspiration to me every day, and I thank you for that. And finally, a word of thanks to somebody who's not here with us anymore, um, who left us late last year, and that's David Weisbrook, uh, who many in this room know and certainly know that he was a champion of human rights, both in terms of research and in practice, and in particular, the rights of non citizens. In fact, David literally wrote the book on that, and, uh, and in particular, how human rights. Treaties and human rights law could be brought to bear to protect refugees and asylum seekers in particular. So, um, Dave, my work is infused with, with David's spirit. As I tell my students all the time uh, when they're preparing for oral arguments or uh, briefs, you have to have a roadmap. You have to tell the audience where you're going. So, I'm going to practice what I preach, uh, and that's what I'm going to do here. So, the roadmap for today, it's actually a series of questions. What's this project about? What do I mean by the constitutionalization of human rights law and its implication for refugees? Uh, how, I, how did I become interested in this project? And What have I been doing the past three years as I've, as I've been working on it? Okay. What have I been spending my time doing? Uh, second, the all-important who cares question, why does this matter? Okay. Um, we'll talk about that. And then finally, what should we be striving for? And by that I mean both as individuals, but as members of a world class research university that is often at the intersection of scholarship and practice, a land grant university that has always stressed that the, the combination of research and service to the community. And what should we be striving for within that context? All right, so uh, as to The first question, uh, which is how I got interested in this. So I've been a clinical teacher now, it's hard to believe, but for over 30 years uh, in a variety of areas, environmental law, consumer protection, and then most recently, human rights law and the law of refugees and asylum seekers in particular. And One of the things that I've been interested throughout that time are what motivates the lawyers who practice in this area and how do they overcome the significant barriers in their way? Barriers as to usually uh, limited resources, uh, financial mostly, uh, and other barriers such as the limited rights of their clients, and certainly in the United States, the increasingly conservative judiciary which has uh, limited those rights. Um, I've dealt with these challenges as a clinical instructor over the years, collaborating with students and my uh, clinical colleagues here at the U for how to combat these obstacles, but also to try and maintain a sense uh, or a semblance of self-care at the same time. And speaking of self-care, shout out to a couple of yoga instructors who I think are on Zoom right now. So thank, <laughs> Namaste. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so my interest in this led me to want to learn more about this from a research perspective and particularly from a comparative perspective and to see how lawyers, particularly in the Global South, uh, operate and and navigate this very difficult space. Because in the Global South, of course, these obstacles of lack of resources uh, and in some cases, uh, physical danger um, are, uh, are much more daunting than the challenges that we face here in the United States. Indeed, being a public interest lawyer, or a cause lawyer as they're sometimes called, in the global south uh, is not just a matter of defying the government, but can actually put one's uh, physical integrity at risk. I also became interested in the gap between the law on the books and the law as it, as it is practiced on the ground. and That gap is perhaps no more pronounced than in the area of human rights because on the one hand, we have all these wonderful treaties uh, with all these very nice sounding uh, provisions uh, to ensure human rights. And yet, on the other hand, we uh, have the lack of implementation, right? and, and, and the reality is that in many in many instances, those human rights are not enforced. So, countries around the world sign on to these treaties uh, without either the uh, intent or the ability to abide by the obligations that they entail. Um, in fact, some research has shown that there's actually a negative correlation between treaty ratification. And state performance, particularly in the area of torture. So that there have been studies that show that there is actually um, a, a correlation between ratification of the Convention Against Torture, which is one of the most universally ratified treaties in the world, um, and an increase in torture um, in, in those states that have ratified it. Um, but enough to spare for right now. I don't want to focus on all the negative stuff. I promised that I would uh, try to be more optimistic today. So, what I want to focus on in my research and talk to you a little bit about today uh, is whether uh, human rights law, particularly in constitutions, has had any kind of positive impact on the lives of refugees and asylum seekers. And the short answer to that is yes, it has. Um, and again, this is where national constitutions come in, and hence the title of this talk and of the forthcoming book from Oxford University Press. So, uh, 1B what have I been doing? What does the project involve? Uh, constitutionalization of human rights law. What does that mean? How does it happen? And it's something that's been on the rise for the last few decades. And it really happens in a couple of ways. One is countries borrow specific human rights provisions from human rights treaties, uh, procedural rights like due process, substantive rights like the right to health care, right to education, uh, right to work. The other way it happens is in a larger scale, where a lot of countries, particularly in the global south, will incorporate entire treaties that have been ratified by that country or signed on to or acceded to in in one way or another. They'll incorporate that entire treaty into the constitution. and That is... um, while they may, not, they may do that without any notion of actually enforcing those laws, what it, what it provides is a tremendously strong weapon, in theory anyway, to advocates uh, on the domestic scene. In other words, now these lofty human rights treaties are enforceable in domestic courts. Now, the constitutionalization of human rights law has been the subject of a lot of scholarly research, these large uh, quantitative studies, large end studies they're called, uh, which link ratification or the constitutionalization of human rights law with state performance by various measures, but we know virtually nothing about how the constitutionalization of human rights law affects refugees and asylum seekers in particular, and also how lawyers who represent those folks utilize them. I should take one step back here. I realize I'm uh, and sometimes conflating, refugees and asylum seekers. and Those who work in this area know that there's a distinction between the two. I'll mention that just briefly. Refugees are folks who have met the standard for a refugee under the 1951 Refugee Convention. What that means is they have a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country on the basis of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, and political opinion. I remembered all five, thank you very much. Asylum seekers, on the other hand, those are folks who have fled their home country and they have a fear of persecution on one or more of those grounds, but they haven't yet received that designation. So in, in, in the media and, and and elsewhere in popular culture, the two, those two terms are often conflated and confused. I'm gonna conflate them and confuse them a little bit today just for purposes of, of the ease here. And so when I talk about refugee lawyers, for example, I'm talking about folks who represent both refugees. And, and asylum seekers, but, but uh, there certainly is a distinction between those two categories. Uh, so, uh, the book I am writing uh, on this topic, the way that lawyers utilize constitutionalized human rights law in defense of refugees/slash asylum seekers, looks at this question from the perspective of five countries. So, and those five countries are depicted on this map. Katie, thank you very much. Um, so, from right to left, more or less: uh, Uganda, South Africa, Colombia, Mexico, and the United States. Why these five countries? Each of them is in the midst of and has, for a while, been dealing with a refugee crisis of one form or another. Uh, Colombia pro- is the most recent uh, entrance into that uh, type of crisis for. for most of its history, at least much of it, the last uh, half century or so, Colombia was a a country of emigration. People were fleeing the armed conflict there. But Because of the the large influx of Venezuelans across the border in the last several years, um, Colombia is now within the top three countries hosting refugees in the world. Uganda is the other one and then Turkey is is number one in the world. Most of the other countries have been uh, dealing with refugees in one way or another for for several years, so that's that. That was one basis for the selection. The other is each has a national constitution with varying amounts of um, uh, constitutionalized human rights law. Some, in some countries, it's quite a bit, particularly in the global south. Uh, other countries, the United States, in particular, comparatively few human rights provision in our constitution. And finally, each of these countries has a dedicated group of lawyers. Uh, committed to protecting the rights of refugees. and That number varies considerably. In the United States, we have thousands. Okay? Uh, in Uganda, you can count the number on two hands. Right? Um, in fact, it's, it's a theme for another day, but uh, sometimes it seems that there's an inverse relationship between the number of human rights treaties in a constitution and the number of lawyers in that country who are able to to, uh, attempt to enforce it uh, on behalf of their clients. Whether that's a statistically significant correlation, I have no idea, but it's it's, it's an interesting question. So Those are the five countries. The methodology for the project, in addition to looking at and analyzing high court decisions involving constitutional law and refugees in each of these countries, involved open-ended interviews with lawyers in, in all five of the countries. Now, this is where COVID came in actually quite handy, I have to say. So I was, and I received grants to travel to each of these countries to to do these interviews in person. That was right before the pandemic hit. Uh, So it forced me to conduct the interviews first by Skype, and then once Zoom became a big thing, via Zoom. This actually had the advantage of, I suddenly had a captive audience of interviewees because folks were at home, they were bored. They were willing to talk to anybody about anything. So I called up and said, I'd like to talk to you about your work. OK, fine. And so, as it turned out, I probably was able to interview far more lawyers than I would have had I traveled to, the, uh, to, the, to, to each of the countries. Um, so, after analyzing all the interviews uh, over uh, two years or so, I realized that there is a, um, a spectrum or a continuum. Uh, of ever more in, ambitious stages through which refugee lawyers seek to make constitutionalized human rights law more meaningful, more meaningful for their clients. I call this the constitutionalized human rights law continuum. So, what does that mean? And, and what's on this continuum? So it has four stages that I found through the interviews. The first, very basic, is the mobilization of the lawyers themselves. A cadre of lawyers in each country, sometimes a lot, sometimes a handful, uh, that are are working on behalf of refugees and asylum seekers. They often work in concert, particularly in countries where there are fewer of them, Uh, they they join forces, they strategize about which cases to bring, what methods to use. That happens here in the United States as well. In fact, some of my colleagues here uh, at the law school are involved in those kind of collective efforts and strategies for making sure that uh, there's a well thought-out uh, method of, of uh, challenging uh, government policy with respect to refugees. Stage two, uh, what I call first principles, what a lot of the lawyers I interviewed call low-hanging fruit. Uh, this is uh, uh, having courts recognize that The constitutional rights that have been enshrined uh, actually do apply to refugees and asylum seekers because that's not always obvious. Um, It's akin to the Hannah Arendt notion of the right to have rights. Uh, Just establishing that non-citizens have uh, the right to constitutional protections is a big deal in some countries. It's fairly well established in the United States. We'll talk about that in a little while, but it's a very narrow Scope of rights that they're entitled to here. Stage three is expanding the scope of those rights. Okay, after we after we um, get through the, the first principles that they're entitled to rights at all, what does that mean? How is that uh, um, what's the scope of those rights? And so there we get into more substantive rights, such as right to healthcare, right to education, uh, the right to work. So that's stage three, expanding the scope of those rights. And then the ever-elusive stage four, which is the implementation of those rights. And this was a common complaint among lawyers in every country uh, about the implement or the, the failure to implement the rights. So particularly in the global south, where there are a lot of constitutionalized human rights provisions, the lawyers said, we love our constitution, it's wonderful. On paper, the problem is these things, including the decisions by courts enforcing those rights do not get implemented on the ground. Uh, and As I'll talk about in a little while, that's really because of a combination of um, uh, failure of um, the administrative agencies charged with enforcing those rights uh, to do so, sometimes quite defiantly, as in South Africa, uh, a lack of resources to uh, um, to enforce the decisions, and the rising tide of xenophobia, Around the world, which emboldens politicians and other government officials in their um, uh, efforts to either delay or deny rights to non citizens. So, those are the four stages of the continuum. Now, I don't have time today to, to delve into each of the countries, but I wanted to at least give a snapshot so, uh, of the five. So, uh, Colombia. Has a lot of constitutionalized human rights provisions. It's on the upper tier. The country with the most in the world is Ecuador with 99. Uh, Colombia has 76. It's between uh, stages two and three on that continuum because there's a relatively recent constitutional court case that holds that fundamental rights under the constitution do apply to non-citizens, including to refugees, and more specifically, as we as we move along that. Spectrum, it held that the particular right of healthcare does apply to refugees. So it's moving between that second and third stage. But we're not exactly sure what the scope of those rights will be. Lawyers there, there's a very active and dedicated group of lawyers at NGOs and at law school clinics uh, who are working on, on these issues as we speak. And so uh, Colombia is a fascinating case. It's a, a, obviously a work in progress, as are all the countries. Um, on this issue, but um, somewhere between stages two and three. Uh, Mexico, not as far along because although some lower courts have held that constitutionalized human rights laws do apply to non citizens, Mexico's highest court, which is its Supreme Court, has not ruled on that issue. In fact, the only issue regarding refugees that the Mexican Supreme Court has decided went the other way, went against refugees, and that involved the deadline for applying for asylum in the United States. Uh, sorry, in Mexico. So in Mexico, if you want to apply for asylum, you have to do so within one month of arriving in the country. Now to put that in perspective, and I see a lot of the folks and my students who practice in this area know in the U.S. you have a year right after you enter the U.S. to apply for asylum. And Those of us who practice in that area complain about that all the time. It's not enough time to put together a case, to talk to witnesses, to gather information, to put together a strong case. In many countries, including Mexico, it's a lot shorter time. So, uh, Advocates at a law school clinic uh, in Mexico City and at at an NGO challenge that on constitutional grounds, on a number of grounds in terms of denying rights to to asylum, uh, but also rights to due process, et cetera. That, that claim was rejected. Mexican Supreme Court said no, the one-month uh, deadline does not violate their constitutional rights. So again, Mexico not quite at stage two in terms of um, uh, development along this spectrum. So more work to be done there for sure. South Africa. Further along, okay, uh, South Africa has had an active jurisprudence with respect to refugees. And asylum seekers really since uh, the fall of apartheid, okay, with the creation of the constitutional court, new constitution, very progressive um, constitutional court, lots of decisions, again, initially establishing those first principles about the applicability of constitutionalized human rights to uh, refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and then after that, moving along to stage three, such that the rights to health care, rights to education. Um, uh, rights to employment are guaranteed for asylum seekers and and refugees. But, and this was a common complaint and a very vociferous complaint, frankly, among the South African lawyers, uh, is the failure to implement. and That's because of the recalcitrance and and, uh, the spirited recalcitrance of the Department of Home Affairs in South Africa, which uh, has just (laughs) brazenly refuses to implement uh, decisions of of the Constitutional Court. Uganda, a very interesting case with Colombia, as I said, they're the second and third uh, largest host of refugees in the world right now, mostly because of South Sudan. It's interesting because Uganda grants what's called prima facie recognition to South Sudanese. All you have to do is prove that you are a South Sudanese citizen, you automatically get refugee protection in Uganda. Uganda is also known for A policy that consciously integrates refugees into the economy, uh, into the national economy. Now, there are a lot of controversial aspects to that program, uh, and I don't have time to go into all of them, but uh, it's also quite different because, and I put them at their approaching stage two because uh, they don't, uh, for reasons of institutional survival, they have not followed the strategic litigation model that so many other countries do in this area, and that's because. The government has the authority to shut down organizations uh, that um, defy uh, the government. So, and this actually happened to the leading refugee rights organization in Uganda a few years ago. It was shut down for several months because it, it, it instigated strategic litigation against the government's uh, refugee uh, policy. So, what what they've done in response? This is an example of the kind of creative lawyering and reacting to the political social context. They take a more collaborative approach and they're quite open about that. So They work with the government. They advise, they consult with government officials who were charged with implementing the law and they work with them. They train them so that, in theory at least, uh, they will uh, apply these laws in the way that they are, were intended to be applied to the rights of uh, refugees and asylum. Seekers, but uh, for the most part, they avoid strategic litigation, again, for reasons of institutional integrity. Um, And then finally, the United States. Uh, Lots to be said about this on on this subject, uh, but I'll keep it brief. I've put them at stage four because, of course, we've got a cadre of uh, dedicated lawyers. Uh, There's long, you know. It's been long held that non-citizens have certain constitutional rights, primarily due process. Um, uh, Now, the scope of those rights is, is quite limited, but there is a right in most cases to a hearing before someone is deported. But Again, as I've said, They've made it to stage four, but very limited in scope. We don't see certainly not there's no constitutional rights in terms of substantive rights. It's all all procedural in the United States. And again, with the increasingly conservative federal judiciary, those rights are being interpreted more and more narrowly. Okay, so that's just a snapshot of, of the five countries. The other thing I wanted to talk about briefly from the research is some of the common lawyering strategies that I saw during the research. Some of these are common to all the countries, but some, as I'll mention, uh, um, apply to a subset and usually those in the global south for reasons I'll explain. So, First, go for low-hanging fruit. We've already talked about this. These are the, quote, easier cases where it's, it's a matter of establishing that refugees are entitled to constitutional rights, although in some countries that's more challenging uh, than others. Second, this is fascinating, more a matter of the global south, educating judges. A lot of the lawyers I spoke to, particularly in Colombia and Mexico, feel that part of their job is not simply to represent their clients in court, it's actually to educate judges about the fact that refugees have rights at all. It's a novel notion in, in some countries. And so they take the long view. In terms of their litigation strategy and their lawyering strategy. And so even if they receive a couple of setbacks, like that one about the, the one-month deadline for applying for asylum, they feel that it's valuable to simply engage judges in a conversation about the rights of refugees at all. Okay. Much different than here in the United States, while where it's mostly about how that law is being applied and whether it's being applied properly. In a particular case. Choose sympathetic clients. This applies, of course, across the board. And most of the lawyers said that this means um, uh, children and women. So when there's when there's uh, when you have the option, the lawyer said, and this particularly happens when we're trying to establish the scope of rights. And so you're trying to establish healthcare as a right for refugees, or education, or employment. You choose a sympathetic client. Now, that's not always possible. Sometimes clients choose you, particularly if the cause that is at issue is important. Uh, but for the most part, the lawyers uh, uh, tr- try to uh, or consciously choose sympathetic clients. Uh, using a human rights cocktail, this is a phrase that several lawyers used again in the global south. We don't have much of a cocktail here in the United States. We pretty much have the due process drink. There's only one of them. It's you know, it's it's not a it's not a mixed drink. It's uh, you know, um, but in other parts of the world, I mean, South Africa, there's a right to human, uh, right to human dignity in the constitution. There's rights to healthcare, other social and economic rights. And so, what the lawyers do is they creatively combine these, in a way that it gives the judges the okay. I'll find, I'll find in favor of 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 um, the refugees on on one or two of these rights, but not all of them. But it, it gives it gives the judges a choice. And so, a lot of the creative lawyering is which of these. Uh, cocktail mixes they're going to use to create uh, uh, a successful case. In fact, uh, what was interesting here is when you talk to the US lawyers about using constitutional arguments in cases on behalf of refugees and asylum seekers they said, we never lead with the constitutional argument. We always lead with the statutory argument. That is the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is our main immigration law. And they said the reason for that, a couple of them said, if you lead with a constitutional argument, especially a constitutional human rights argument in the US, you will be seen as a left wing nut. That's a direct quote. Um, and this reminds me of, of, of something that only a UK lawyer should say. And Julia may remember this from her work for me on, the, on the, uh, a project involving human rights law and, and in the UK several years ago, where one of the lawyers said, uh, if you emphasize human rights law in your argument, you are at risk of over-egging the pudding, which I think is, again, only something a UK lawyer would say. In other words, you're going to be seen as not having a very strong case if you have to rely on human rights arguments. Whereas in countries like Colombia, Mexico, South Africa, that's the, that's the only game in town, you have to, you have to do so. Another strategy, focusing on rights enjoyed by everyone, not merely refugees and asylum seekers. So That's why the focus is on things like the right to healthcare, right to education, right to employment. These are rights that are accorded to everyone as opposed to, let's say, um, rights or procedures pertaining to the asylum determination process things that impact only refugees and asylum seekers. If you can cast things as something that everybody is entitled to and therefore refugees and asylum seekers should be entitled to those things, you'll have a better chance of succeeding. Another strategy, this came up in all the countries, framing the narrative. and This has become more and more important in recent years because of the demonization of refugees and asylum seekers in many parts of the world, including here in the United States, I mean, I've seen it in the time that I've been doing asylum work here at the U. Where when I started, 13 or 14 years ago, and you said you were working on behalf of asylum seekers, mostly most people thought, oh, you're, you know, this is virtuous work, and you could, you know, you should feel great about yourself. Now, you know, uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, the, the feeling may not be quite that way, and that's because. Um, of the way that many political figures have cast asylum seekers and refugees as, as fraudsters, as gaming. Fraudsters is what they're called in the UK, he, or queue jumpers, people who are trying to game the system, get around the normal way of, of regularizing one's status, using asylum, faking that you have a well-founded fear of persecution. A few years ago, Jeff Sessions, the former Attorney General, talked about dirty immigration lawyers who were basically telling their clients to lie uh, about their fear of persecution. Boris Johnson, today, as part of this policy of redirecting refugees to Rwanda, said he blamed it on the lawyers. Essentially, he said, lawyers have made up these claims such that we now have these waves of folks wanting to claim asylum. We can't deal with it. We're going to send them to Rwanda and process and let them process the claims. So, um, what? So, what? A lot of the lawyers in all the countries talked about is the need to re, the need to reframe this narrative, to personalize um, uh, the refugees and asylum seekers, humanize them, as opposed to, to as opposed to them being seen as just hordes of folks coming across the border from the south of, in the United States. You know, as part of caravans coming to other countries via boat in mass numbers, etc. And finally, avoiding cases involving national security. So, uh, part of that framing of the narrative by many governments is to cast refugees and asylum seekers as security risks. Um, And so, part of framing the narrative or the counter narrative is to de emphasize that and avoid cases where possible uh, where. The government is able to cast it as a matter of national security. So, again, that is why cases for for, um, uh, social uh, and economic rights are oftentimes more successful because, in general, they don't involve matters of national security. Okay, so those are the lawyering strategies. So, who cares about all of this? What does it matter? And I'll I'll try to wrap up here in a few minutes because I know the refreshments. Are waiting, and I'd love to hear any questions that folks have. So, um, from uh, I, I, I want to look at this from both an academic and a practical perspective. So, um, you know, this is a key time right now. We find ourselves in a situation where there are more refugees than at any other time in our history, yet simultaneously, countries around the world are ignoring their obligations to protect them. The traditional instrument for that protection, which is that 1951 Refugee Convention, has proved inadequate, particularly in the face of forces that drive mass migration, such as armed conflict, what we're seeing right now in Ukraine, uh, climate change refugees, and sexual violence, domestic and sexual violence, which we see in many claims presented by folks Crossing the border um, uh, from Central America into Mexico and then the United States. So, this makes domestic law, particularly constitutional law, I think in some ways the last best hope uh, for addressing the issue of refugee flows on a large scale. So, um, with respect to the literature on treaty effectiveness and constitutionalized human rights law more specifically, these kinds of qualitative studies are important because. Many of the countries in this study featured a lot of the variables that are associated with effective human rights protection. They have constitutions with a lot of um, human rights provisions. They have progressive constitutional courts in the case of Colombia and South Africa, Um, and they have Some decisions that have been rendered by those by those countries that have helped refugees. On the other hand, uh, because of issues of implementation, xenophobia, poverty, um, they those decisions have uh, or those factors have not led to improved behavior with respect to refugees. So these kinds of uh, qualitative studies provide some nuance to the study to to research in this area. so we call this bottom-up research. Okay, studying what's going on on the ground to find out what lawyers and other advocates are actually doing uh, to protect the rights of refugees. Uh, and from a practical perspective, as I as I say, I think this research has shown, has demonstrated the importance of domestic courts uh, and sort of bottom-up advocacy instead of um, advocacy at the international or even the regional court level but it's really at domestic the domestic court level uh, in, in all of these countries and other countries certainly where a lot of the action is occurring so finally what should we be striving for um, here at at the U of M so a few things along these lines I think uh, This research and others like it demonstrate the importance of research that's at the intersection of law and practice. As academics and as students in a world-class research university, this is an area replete with opportunities at this intersection. Uh, The partnerships that we developed as a result of this project, as well as others that were funded by the strategic partnership uh, program have enabled scholars and students to have an impact on the enforcement of human rights to which refugees are entitled. Uh, and These partnerships enable qualitative studies to help us find out what is going on on the ground. It's also an opportunity because of the refugee crisis that's here at our doorstep in the Twin Cities. We have NGOs um, like the Advocates for Human Rights, Center for Victims of Torture, the Immigrant Law Center of Minnesota, the legal services offices in town, who work with our law students to protect the rights of refugees, asylum seekers, and other immigrants. and They react to current crises like the crisis in Afghanistan that started last year, and of course, the the crisis in Ukraine now, and who knows what crisis that's going to emerge next year. Um, Those advocates and students know that the constitutional rights of non-citizens are extremely limited here in the US, but they nevertheless work tirelessly to enforce and expand them. And I think they can learn from the example of what lawyers and law students are doing in other countries. So, partnerships with organizations in the US and abroad for both research and advocacy are things that I think we should strive for at the university level. And finally, um, here at the U of M, thanks to the generosity of folks like the Michael family, the Rabina Foundation that created the Center for New Americans human rights hubs like the Law School's uh, Human Rights Center, uh, the Human Rights Program at the College of Liberal Arts. Um, you know We have a, a, an array of resources here at the university, both financial and human, dedicated to the cause of human rights. So I think the way forward and what we should strive for is for all of us to use these comparatively vast resources when you compare it to the rest of the world, Uh, to figure out ways to help bridge that gap between the law on the books and how it's carried out uh, on the ground to enrich the lives uh, of the world's refugees. So thank you very much, uh, and I am happy to take any questions if we have some time for that. Chris, and then, Lena and Claire. On several fronts. I mean, it, w- it, w- it was a wonderful experience. Um, you really learn, uh, I'd say, to respect the insights and the dedication, but also the sense of frustration that that many lawyers have, which is common to what we feel here. I mean, the students, my colleagues on the clinical faculty, about this gap between you know the law as it's written and and what happens in real life, um, and how frank they are about it. They're that, that, that was the other thing I mean they're guaranteed anonymity right but I'm not sure that that matters half of them said oh I don't care you can publish what I say anyway um, uh, but their, their frankness about uh, I would say about the frustration with what they do but their but dedication in in, in the face of what they do in, in terms of bringing uh, to bear what they have said to our work what for a long time, and this certainly happened with the work I had done in UK and Canada and elsewhere, often thought, well, could we bring that mindset of utilizing human rights law into our day-to-day um, advocacy? And This is where that quote from the one lawyer here about being seen as a left-wing nut or over-egging the pudding uh, comes into play because we, we thought about it sometimes in some of our clinical advocacy. Well, why don't we cite, I don't know, the Convention Against Torture here, or um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. That could be risky, depending on the judge. I mean, uh, first of all, some judges, well, why, You know, th- that's not enforceable in my court, so why are you citing it? And like the lawyer in the UK said, and that could be a sign that you don't have a very strong case under US statutory law because you're citing this weird international law. So, you know, I. On an academic level, and as a somebody who studies this stuff comparatively, I would love to do that. But at the same time, I'm an advocate who has a responsibility to my client, and if I think there's a risk that this judge is going to, um, uh, you know. Take it out on my client because uh, the lawyer is referencing these things or rule against my client for that reason. I I I will be circumspect about doing that. I mean, there may be some situations, particularly if you work on, I mean, we've done some amicus briefs actually, and there um, you have a little more latitude in 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 the sources that you can cite. So there, we've 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 referenced human rights a lot more readily, but in the day-to-day U.S. asylum context, it's difficult. It, it, it's really difficult. It may, it's much, you know, the work that they're doing. I was just I was in Columbia two weeks ago. The work they're doing there is really exciting, you know. I mean, uh, the clinics, boy, they are really engaged in some some cutting edge legal strategy on some important issues with respect to refugees. Law, law students are getting. I mean, you know, I wish. Or I mean, our law students are doing important work, but for individuals. But but. Um, The folks down there, it's it's kind of wide open, and they have a and they have a a constitutional court that's very receptive to their arguments. I mean, to give you an example, so what happens in Colombia is the constitutional court actually publishes a list. They call them tutelas, and 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 so those are the cases that are coming before it. Many of whom don't have lawyers, right? And they publish this. The law clinics get a list of this, you know, and so like we'd be in our in our clinic meetings. Oh, here's a case. Let's do this one. Right. This looks interesting, and you just file an appearance, and then you can file a brief, and uh, certainly cite to you know human rights law when you do it. You better do it, right? You got to get the human rights cocktail going. Um, that's harder to do here for any number of reasons. Um, but I, I do think what 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 has what has um, helped me in my advocacy here in terms of the clinic is just, I don't know, the broader perspective you get when you learn about what's going on in other countries, both in terms of the similarities and in terms of the differences, and and many of the struggles are very similar. Uh, Let me go to Alina, Claire.
1: Bob. Hi, Professor. Thank you so much for speaking on this today. It's very interesting. Um, My question, you mentioned uh, educating judges in other countries, and I was, like the lawyers educating judges and having a conversation with them. Can you talk a bit more about how that actually occurs and if at all you think it's possible to do something similar in the United States or have some kind of conversation open with judges here in the US?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, how, it, how it happens is just is, is through the, uh, the litigation process and, and um, a, lot of, a lot of the litigation is on the paper, so it's in the briefing. Um, but uh, you know, it's 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 making arguments that raise these issues, but maybe for the first time, and uh, encouraging the judges to at least recognize that these rights are available to refugees and that the court should enforce them. How possible is that in the in the U.S.? I think the risk that you run in the U.S. is you could seem pedantic, right? Uh, if you um, phrase things in any way that suggests that the judges are unfamiliar with the law. I mean, you know that in our um, brief writing, in, in part because of the page limitation, you can't even you don't cite much law at all, right? You just assume that the judges know what the applicable law is, and then you present the facts uh, that you think satisfy those legal standards, so there's not much space for education in the US. I think it would also, could backfire. Yeah, Claire.
3: So When you were talking about the difference between being thought of as a virtuous sort and then now reactions being a bit more mixed, one thing that I Gather sort of contributes to that is that there's some sort of paradigms or uh, sort of prototypical people who some people might wish had not gotten asylum and did, and every once in a while, such a person, there's some ostentatious bad kind of thing that happens, Mm -hmm. and then you get, at least this is my analysis of it, you know, this whole sort of identity, Um, view of, uh, in in which, even if you were to say to them, you know, this is 00000 percent and look all the other ones are out winning Nobel Prizes, it sort of, it wouldn't help because the identity thing is so dominant. So, assuming that that is a plausible way of seeing the pathology, um, is there a strategy that you've about is there some way to get better at figuring out who the .0001 who's going to do the ostentatious bad thing is, or if not, is there some better way to point out that they are a .000 whatever? Is there some way to get back your uh, your deserved virtuous reputation?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, and that gets to the whole framing the narrative thing. I and mean, one of the lawyers I talked to in the states, very prominent refugee lawyer, said that. He spends several hours each day talking to the media um, and in, in an attempt to do exactly what you're saying, um, emphasize that, and, but it's more a matter of, of, of promoting the, uh, um, the virtuous side of things, not so much what he's doing, but that the refugees that they're representing are deserving of rights and, and of, of robust protection. It's a really good question, and I don't know how much attention is paid to what about the zero, you know, the .000, 000 uh, percentage of uh, folks who are granted asylum who do bad things afterwards. Um, and maybe rather than just trying to forget about those, because folks who are opposed to our asylum laws and and quote open borders and all of that rhetoric uh, will seize on those cases and do and. Those of us who are advocates for refugee rights maybe need to do a better job of admitting to the fact that yeah, there's some folks who abuse the privileges uh, of of a path, pathway to citizenship that you get through asylum. But of course, there are many many citizens who abuse their privileges also. Now that doesn't necessarily forgive any individual in particular, but there probably could be better attention and just acknowledgement that like you know, not everybody is is a model citizen to be. That's a good point.
4: Bob. Uh, Steve, thank you for really an excellent, yes thank you, thank you for an excellent lecture, this is very interesting. I'd like your thoughts about uh, this idea, whether this horrendous war in the Ukraine right now might lead to some greater uniformity in the treatment of refugees around the world. We're told that there are probably more than four million refugees that have left the Ukraine, and they've emigrated to dozens of countries all over the world, including the United States. And so their status is going to be coming up in a variety of countries, even in Europe, closely related countries. And uh, it would seem that would be a pressure to try to reach the same kind of conclusions in one country versus another. Have you got any thought to this and this would produce some pressure for greater recognition of human rights among refugees in a large number of countries?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Bob. I think it, I mean, it's certainly putting pressure on the the refugee system globally and and certainly in in the global north. Uh, I think that one of the ways it may lead to uh, you know, if you look at it, I suppose, optimistically, if one can, it, go, it goes to the issue of mass migration and the need for the international refugee system to respond in a humane and efficient way to, um, in a sense, push factors that create large-scale migration. So Right now, the system is designed to deal with folks on an individual basis. Does that individual, establish uh, or meet the criteria for refugee protection. But it's woefully inadequate to deal with any kind of migration on a grand scale. And so these are things like armed conflict, um, such as Ukraine, but also climate change. Um, And it may be particularly because of uh, where that crisis is occurring and who the refugees are and where they're going, it may create more pressure for some kind of a, uh, a more systematic and efficient and humane response, as opposed to, let's say, a crisis in the crisis in Colombia with Venezuelans, which is also on a huge scale, but most people don't even know about it or care about it. People care a lot more about the refugees leaving Ukraine for a variety of reasons. So maybe that's the kind of crisis that will. Produce a global response that will be more effective, instead of leaving it to the individual countries like Colombia, which, you know, even if they wanted to, you know, and they've done some some good things, uh, contemporary protected status, for example, uh, for folks from Venezuela is the most recent response, um, but some kind of global response. Uh, that will recognize that we've got to do something beyond the individual determination of a well founded fear of persecution because, you know, maybe that worked after World War II, uh, it doesn't work anymore. And it's not going to work into the future because these, these mass migrations caused by armed conflict and climate change are just going to get worse and worse and larger and larger. Thank you. Well, those repressions.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law Podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law, or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.